The I'm Fine podcast is produced by Lemore Media LLC and is run by Project Headspace and Timing. Project Headspace and Timing is a 501c3 that I started in 2017 after a veteran that I was a medic to decided to pull over on the side of the road and end his life. As an organization, Project Headspace and Timing works on veteran advocacy and veteran outreach. What that means is through the advocacy uh, perspective, we try to connect veterans to other resources as early on into the process as possible. What that entails is early contact with veterans, forming a safety net with their family members, friends, and fellow service members, educating them on the resources, and when that veteran is ready to get help, we are there to make sure that they get the help that they need. The outreach aspect is put there to get veterans together to do productive and constructive things, whether it's out in nature, working with other businesses, anything to get them out around other veterans where those good conversations can happen if they want to have them. If you are interested in finding out more information about our organization, please visit projectheadspaceandtiming.org our Facebook page, Project Headspace and Timing, or our Instagram, which is Project Headspace and Timing. And if you would like to donate to our organization, uh, please visit our website, projectheadspaceandtiming.org. Scroll to the bottom and you will find a link to our Venmo. If you'd like to send us a check, our P.O. Box is P.O. Box 382, Mantino, Illinois, 60950. And if you'd like to sponsor or have any other questions, feel free to reach out to me at Eric P, P's and Paul, at projectheadspaceandtiming.org. Thank you. Welcome to episode four, the I'm Fine podcast. Today we're going to talk about grief. Grief has greatly impacted both Brad and I's lives, and we really want to share those journeys with you, along with talking about what grief is, the stages of grief, and dealing with grief. So strap in for what I assume could potentially be a fairly emotional episode of the I'm Fine podcast. Welcome to the I'm Fine podcast with your freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional hosts, Eric Peterson and Brad Stozik. So how are you feeling, man? Feeling good. Yeah? Yeah. How's school been going? You just started back school. School's good. Yeah? Yeah, school's good. College is tough. Yeah. yeah well, college stuff. We started this podcast in a time where like both of us had so much stuff going on. And for me, we started this right before our festival, like our one festival of the year. And yes. so the first few episodes, like, you know, it was really hectic. Our schedules are hectic. It's kind of opening up a little bit right now. It's tough with school and everything like that. But well, your schedule's opening and mine is closing. So well, yeah. there's there's well, that. And how many times have I picked you up and I've been on like phone call after phone call after phone call? Like the second you get in my car, like I can't even talk to you for like, I don't know. Every time you minutes. pick me up. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so people don't understand. Like I'm always, always five minutes late and I'm always on the phone pretty much. You know what I mean? Oh, but every time. But I feel like it's kind of starting to open up a little bit now that we're into episode four we're starting to figure out how we want this to work and getting more comfortable so. with ourselves other than our hand placement 
for the video yeah you that's were just talking about how like we don't know what to do with our hands and my suggestions the will fair i'll just keep them up just hold them up like this in front of the camera Probably. for the entire podcast every single episode i don't know if i have the endurance for that dude <sighs> that's it's shoulders yeah that's a lot of shoulder strength i, I think these I shoulders think. are a little depressing <laughs> oh, speaking of depressing <laughs> we wanted to take this podcast on and we're talking about some heavy shit man like yeah. some of these up and grief was something that you and i wanted to talk about from the very beginning initially episode one was going to be called fuck cancer it was when we talked about it for a while yes we both have dealt with it a lot it's impacted it's shaped our lives from early ages to now and so one thing that you said before we started this was that you have not been looking forward to this episode of it not at all why is that this one i think is just gonna hit hard it's gonna i i'm not really a fan of talking about my past and rehashing out things that cut pretty deep you know yay it's gonna be fun yeah we need those like (laughs) we need those sound effects uh this goofy like sound effects that we can play while we're telling these incredibly depressing sad and frustrating stories right just to lighten the mood like a little bit i I know i know but what we talked about earlier is when it comes to grief especially which we'll get into you can't run from shit you have to be open as open as you possibly can and you can lie to the rest of the world but you can't lie to yourself like you got to talk about that shit even if it's to yourself it's part of the healing process man so for sure first off what is grief so oxford dictionary says that grief is being in a deep sorrow especially caused by someone's death whenever we think about grief you associate it with death i think it's fair to say absolutely yeah And, and before we did this podcast what i didn't know is i didn't know that there were so many other things that grief can be a part of so when we look this up crosswindcounseling.org says that causes of grief outside of death ex- include divorce separation imprisonment injury retirement pregnancy miscarriage child leaving home and changing residences so grief doesn't just follow death and when i saw that it follows divorce i know you have some stuff to talk about this uh Um, talk about in a little bit about this but it's like i think of my close friends and family that i've watched go through divorce and then you think of the steps of grief the stages of grief that we're going to talk about in a second you're like oh shit yeah they hit those same kind of things for sure and and those stages of grief so there's five stages of grief (sighs) depending on what you look up we're a couple of knuckleheads depending on what you look up you can find as many stages as possible as far as like how many stages there are of grief but what we're basing this off of is the kubler ross model uh, the five stages of grief which are denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance elizabeth kubler ross was a swiss american psychiatrist a pioneer of studies on dying people and in 1969 she wrote the book on death and dying where she proposed these five stages so denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance and all those suck to deal with like none of them are fun there's no good and i really just wish like one of them could be like the five stages of grief or denial anger bargaining depression and like tap dancing tap like, dancing just something that doesn't suck because all those suck i think once you get to the acceptance stage i think what sucks most about it is that it it cycles it's a repeat you get the acceptance stage you're like yes I've accepted it. 
I'm okay with what just happened. And then the next day you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe that this just happened. Back in denial. Absolutely, yes. And it's not even so much, like when you say it's a cycle, it's a cycle, yep. but it's a, a cycle not in like a perfect circular oh, type no. of way. Oh, it's no. like take a bunch of fucking spaghetti noodles, wet ones, and throw them on the table. And Get you're like, it's like that. Mm -hmm. Because you go from denial to bargaining, depression, anger, depression, anger, depression, anger. <laughs> like I pretty much bounce between depression and anger. Old school pawn. Like I'm always there. Yes. I'm either at anger or depression. And then denial kind of slips in. Denial and bargaining not so much for me. No. And I've talked to my friends and therapists about that too. And I think that's because one, I was raised Catholic and two, I was a grunt. So I just expect shit to go wrong. Okay. I feel like if I'm going through denial and bargaining, then I'm almost wasting my time hmm. because I'm like, I can't change this. This is what's happening. No amount of bargaining is going to get me out of this. No amount of denial is going to undo what's happening right now. Yeah. But in, so instead, I really just bounce, like I said, between anger and depression, I feel like. And I think from the clinical side, they, all the models, they show the perfect circle of going through the stages. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that's the proper way to go about that. Because like you said, it's not like that. You don't experience depression for a week and then go to denial and then acceptance you know what I mean? There's no timetable for the feelings that you feel. You wish it would be that clean cut where <laughs> yeah. you could just set your watch to it. And you're like, okay, I'm going to be in denial for the next 47 minutes. Yep. And then boom, anger. Yep. But like, like you said, we should draw a model and yeah. then submit it to like the DSM people and just take spaghetti noodles, yep. wet ones, yep. throw them at a table, and then just take a picture of it. Boop. And then say, here are the stages of anger. Or the, excuse me, the stages of grief. Absolutely. Because that's how I feel. And I don't think with, you're alone on that. Right. And with that acceptance, you also feel like you've reached acceptance and that's the final stage. So everything must be fine now. And then all of a sudden, anger and depression are like, what's up, buddy? Like they just kind of <laughs> peek around your shoulder and you're like, yeah. fuck, I thought I was done with you guys. And it just kind of volleys. I feel like when I've experienced it, you know, I, I hit my lowest lows and like you hit a low and you're like, this is as low as I can get. Nope. Go a little bit lower and a little bit lower still. And emotionally and psychologically, you get so exhausted that you almost hit these like spurts where it's like the eye of the storm. I feel like yep. where all of a sudden, like for a second, you don't feel those emotions yep. now because I think it's maybe you're just exhausted and it's almost like a high type of feeling. Where it's not like you're happy by any means, but it's almost like maybe it's a, the numbness and things that come along with it. But for a little bit, I've also experienced those moments of, I just think my body's so tired, my brain is so tired, yeah. that all those emotions just all get shut off mm -hmm. for a little bit too. And you've, you reach this weird type of feeling where I don't want to use the word enlightening because that almost sounds, I mean, it just that glorifies it. I'm not trying to glorify it. It's similar to that because I think you just, when you come to that understanding of the unfairness of the world and how so many things happen that are outside of your control, there's almost a sort of peace with that. Because I think inherently we try to control so much yeah, and you always want to control things in your life. And when you experience grief, it's something that you couldn't control, something traumatic, knowing that there's nothing you can do almost brings you some sort of peace. I mean, is that, does that sound bad? 
No, I totally get where you're coming from. Yeah. But I think when it comes to grieving and stuff, we do anything in our power to find that sense of peace. And I think it, it really doesn't matter what route that is, yeah. just as long as you, because like you said, you need, it's exhausting. It is exhausting to grieve, to be sad, to be angry. So you need that moment of calmness, that moment of it's okay. And I think it just kind of breaks it up a little bit just to kind of help you out because it's such a stressful experience. Absolutely. And the anger that you feel so weird, because like grief consumes you. It consumes you so much that like when I've experienced grief, you'll walk outside and you'll see somebody laughing and you're like, what the fuck are those people laughing about? Like you get mad yep. at some strangers for just having a good day because you're having a shitty day. So heretofore, everybody should be having a shitty day because you're having a shitty day. You run through those types of feelings. And, and the only way I could explain it was I was just angry that the world was still turning. Oh, sure. Because it's like my world has changed. My world has stopped. But the world for everybody else is still continuing and they're still experiencing all these great things in life. And out of a moment of just selfish frustration, that makes you mad. Did you experience that too? A little bit? Sort of. Yeah. Like other people's happiness. Like yeah. why are you? Yeah. 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 Do you feel guilt with grief? So for example, for my sister. Yeah. Like I felt guilty like for her because she has such a busy life and she put everything on hold. I'm not, I did a lot too. Like my wife and I, we, we, when my dad got sick, she was by his bedside every single day. For me, I felt guilty. Like I should be doing more. <sighs> I think you're always going to feel that grief because the type of mindset I think a lot of people have is that we can always do more. So it's like when you find out that a parent has a terminal illness, yeah. a loved one has a terminal illness, you want to spend every second of the day with them. Now, you know that that might not be possible because you have other responsibilities, other priorities. Now, most of those priorities aren't nearly as important as your parents, but then you have your kids. You have to provide for those kids. You need to make sure that you are doing what's necessary to keep your family unit going. But I think that guilt absolutely comes to be a part of it. And I'll talk more about this later. But when my mom got sick the second time and I was told that it was terminal, that moment I told myself, Okay, there can't be any regrets here. And there can't be any regrets from this point forward because I don't want to carry that with me while I'm also processing the possible loss of one of the most, if not the most important person in my life. And so do I think I can spend more time? Of course, but we're always going to think that. And that's not fair. I don't think it's fair to say that to yourself. But when you say to yourself, like, the quality-wise, am I doing what I know I can do? And there's quality to my my visits. There's quality to my time spending together. Like I'm, I'm making sure that I'm doing what I think I should be doing. And if I can, if I can just say yes to that, then I need to be okay with that. Because again, I could always tell myself I could spend more time. I could do this. I could do that. You're always going to be able to say that to yourself, unless you're spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week with that person you're going to tell yourself, oh, I could always do more. And so that's not fair to beat yourself up about it, in my opinion. And it was easier said than done. Yeah. It's not fair to beat yourself up about it. You know what's crazy, dude? You're saying unless you spent so much time, 
I over the summer I didn't have school, right? So I I was at my dad's twenty four seven. Yeah. But the thing is, he would need something, but he'd be like, "Hey, Michelle, can you do this? Hey, Michelle, can you help me with this?" And I'm like, "Dad, I'm right here. You know, I can help you out. I'm here to help you. You know, you can't see." Like, and he said that you can't see very well. Just let have Michelle help me. I'm here to help you. Right. Like I, I, and I know maybe just hanging out is helping enough, but I am a fully functioning member of society. Yeah. I can take care of my sick dad if, if, if you need help. Yeah. And that was like, not only was I grieving my dad dying. Now it feels like I am useless. Ah, yeah, man. That I'm just of somebody who can't see just sitting on the couch doing nothing as my dad is dying. But with that, I would have to venture to guess to, I mean, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the situation, but from like his perspective, maybe he just wanted you there yeah. and he didn't want you to have to do anything else. And because you were there so often, he also wanted to involve other family members or whatever the case may be. I, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but you can't tell yourself that you're worthless because of that or anything else, regardless of the circumstance. Because the thing about it is, is that nobody in this world can tell you what you're worth. The only person that can is yourself. Other people can seem like they're telling you what your worth is, but really they're just kind of, you know, more or less reflecting on themselves, I think. So nobody can tell you what you're capable of. And so the fact that you were spending your time there too should also kind of combat that feeling of grief because dude you were spending time with him also and regardless of the issues that you have to deal with every day you still managed to have the intestinal fortitude to go and be there for your dad which is something you should be proud of because how long have you been dealing with visual visual impairment for it's been about four or five years now so four or five years yeah do you have that completely handled and good to go with all that have that all figured out and you're just totally good with oh, yeah, everything that, that comes with that yeah that was after like week three yeah, yeah i was gonna say yeah, so yeah. It was something pretty yeah. easy to get over with you're like ah things are darker now but oh, yeah. it's fine yeah. no you're still fucking dealing with that every day <laughs> absolutely dude. Yeah. you're dealing with that you're dealing with your kids yeah. you're dealing with family you're dealing with everything man so yeah again just not fair to beat yourself up about in my opinion yeah but and with that so you know i looked in uh the dsm and uh, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And they actually included something for grief in March of 2022. So in March of this year, they had a, a revision and they added prolonged grief disorder. So it's so the one thing that they added to the DSM, which is also known as complicated grief, traumatic grief, and persistent complex bereavement disorder. So it's for people that are still grieving one year after experiencing a loss, which I when I first read that, I was like, that's fucking everybody that experiences grief. Yeah. But it said, and also unable to return to everyday activities. So, okay. I mean, that would be, that's a defining thing to me. Cause I'm just like, okay. Cause like for me, I'm still able to do my everyday activities for the most part. I had to take some time here and there where for a few days or a week or whatever, like I'm not doing so great. Mm -hmm. I got to slow some things down, but that made sense to me. So like prolonged grief disorder, which they say they expect that to apply to about 4% of uh, bereaving people. As far as at first experiences with grief. So yeah. it's very important, I think, 
to think about those first times that you actually did experience grief in your life. Yeah. Because if that's not something that's accepted, it can cause issues later, which you talked about. So I know you've had a few more prominent, impactful experiences with grief at a young age than I did, right? I did. Yeah. Actually, you know, it was about the same time, eighth grade. Like I've mentioned before in previous episodes, my grandmother passing, that probably was my very first encounter with genuinely grieving something that had a really big impact in my life. And you were in eighth grade? Yes, eighth grade. Do you remember, are there any moments that stick out to you? Like that you have just that own real estate in your your mind? The moment she passed, man. We we were there. I mean, I wasn't there when it happened, but the night before it happened, you know, my mom and my dad were like, all right, it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later. Go say what you need to say. She's not going to be able to respond to you, but she can hear you. And in a way, I almost, I didn't want to do that. Right. Because that was like, that was it. That was the final goodbye. (sighs) It's okay, man. In that moment that you brought up, when it's like, say what you need to say. Yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah. And how do you tell a 13-year-old? Like, yeah. hey, this is it. Yeah. Say say everything you have to say to your grandma for the last time because that's it. And it's a shitty situation because on one end, do you just deny everything to your kid? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you have to let them know, like, these are the stakes right now. Yeah. Because hopefully that adds a little bit more understanding on your side. So, like, I understand, I think, the parent side, and that also comes from something we relate with in telling our children about what we've been dealing with recently. Yep. Um, So I understand that, too. It's just a shitty situation all around. Because the the amount of emotional weight, I think, that puts on you. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to talk about the last episode of Power Rangers that I just saw. Like, what the fuck am I going to talk about as a kid? Right. You know what I mean? Like, holy shit. Yeah. What did you, do you remember what you talked to her about? (sighs) I don't, man. I I just know it was a lot of crying. Yeah. I I love you a thousand times. I mean, what do you, what do you say? They can't respond. I went in there. It was a hospital bed. Her eyes were closed. She was breathing, but it was kind of like, like, (gasps) and then you'd wait a long time. And then there was another, so it was just like a, a really long, and it's just like, you see that that's the first time I've ever experienced any of that in my life. So I didn't know what to expect. So of course I see that and instantly start crying because I knew I knew I was, I wasn't a super young child. I'm not, I wasn't dumb. I knew what was happening and it just to see that it was tough, dude. Yeah. I mean, it, I just remember walking in saying i love you like a thousand times and then just crying yeah and i sat at the foot of the bed and just cried and everybody else you know they came in and then i I walked out and i walked into my grandma's room and my grandpa was sitting on the bed and i've never seen my grandpa cry oh i've never seen him cry and he was bawling his eyes out and when you see the um the male figurehead of your family. Yeah. Like if you have that type of experience, cause I, that, I have a similar experience, like where you've never seen them cry and then you see them cry. That's like a, like, Nope. That's when you know shit hit the fan and it's serious. Yeah. And that's, and you remember it vividly. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Oh because yeah. It, it was so fucking insane. Oh yeah. That you saw this person cry. Cause you've never seen this person cry before. 
when I had to tell my daughter about what's going on with my mom, her terminal cancer and all this other stuff, you know, I, I didn't know if I should tell my daughter or not. So my oldest daughter is five and I wanted her to know what was happening. So I took her out, we grabbed some ice cream and we went to this beautiful park in my town in Mantino and we sat down together and we ate it. I talked to her about life and I've talked to her about life and death before. And I talked to her about what was going on with Lola. And when I talked to her about it for a little bit, I let her know what was happening because my daughter hadn't seen my mom since she's been in the hospital. So it's been a while. Mm -hmm. And now that my mom's at home with hospice, with uplifted care, like I want to bring my daughters around her so my kids can see her again. And so I wanted her to know going into this, this is what's going on. And I just want you to be aware of it because I'm very open with my kids like that. And she asked me a ton of questions. Yeah. I answered them all. And then she just started bawling. And when she started bawling, I started bawling. And then she saw me crying and she started crying even more because I'm not a huge crier. Yep. Yet with everything going on with my mom, I've cried more times in the past two weeks than like my entire life. I'm fairly certain it's safe to say. And you know what? It's okay. Yes. It's okay. And that's the thing is like, I don't run from it. Like I've cried. It's like a fucking Dr. Seuss book. I've yep. cried in the bathroom, in the hallway, in the kitchen, <laughs> in the bedroom, in the, like I've, I've, uh, in the car, on yep. your way to work, at the gas station. Like just, you can be anywhere and it just hits you. Yeah. And then you're just like, mm, I'm not even going to hold this in. And so we got to have that talk and it was very meaningful. And I could tell that my, my daughter understood what was happening. And then we went over to visit my mom. You know, my daughter was doing, she was amazing. Like she just went in there and just wanted to spend time with Lola and laugh and play and, and color pictures for her and show them to her. So I don't know the kind of impact it can have on a young person, but you, you looked into that, right? I did. And it actually, I don't remember the website, so yeah. I apologize for not having that, but I did find that. Childhood grief, if not dealt with properly, is one of a major leading cause to adulthood depression. That makes sense. Yes. And it makes me rack my brain like, is this why I'm depressed? I mean, certainly it's part of it. If, sure. you, if it's something you don't get to accept and acknowledge and move on from, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it absolutely makes sense. And then you put on top of that what we talked about earlier. So there's other things other than death that cause grief. Yep. And so as a kid, obviously if somebody dies in your life, you will experience grief, but you can also experience grief from a divorce. Like we were talking about earlier, like initially when I heard that, you know, I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day who invited me out to get a beer because he just knew what was happening in my personal life right now. And we were getting on the topic of of grief and he was like, well, you know, I don't understand what you're going through, but, you know, I'm here for you. And I was like, I appreciate that, dude. But I know that he went through a divorce. And I said, you know, you've been through a divorce. I think you've been through similar things. And he said, no, that's not anything like what you're going through. And some details, yes. But then when we found this, I was like, oh, shit. Denial, bargaining, anger, depression, sure. and then finally acceptance. How is that not what you go through? You dealt with it as a kid, right? I did. I did. Yeah. My parents did. They got divorced actually around the exact same time that my grandma passed. <sighs> they were going through the divorce. I'll never forget. My grandma was was sick. And then my mom and I were sitting in the car and we were driving. My mom goes, hey, I need to ask you something. And she goes, how would you feel if your father and I split up? 
I was trying to be like the brave, like man of the house yeah. type guy. And I was like, well, mom, if it means your happiness, I'm okay with it. If it means you're going to be happy, I'm okay. Obviously, I wasn't freaking okay with it. My entire life was splitting up. In a sense, a divorce is almost like death, right? Because you're losing somebody you love in a way. It's the death of a relationship. It, it, yeah. It's the death of all possible future experiences it, and memories that will happen from that relationship. Like it's the death of those things. Yes, exactly. And yeah. as getting that as a child, I didn't know any better than I, I had no idea of my parents' personal life. I had no clue. So my mom's like, hey, how would you feel about that? Oh, I'm fine, mom. It's, yeah. And <laughs> if we remember what Melanie said on her episode, episode three, one of the things that they're finding is the more responsibilities that you put on the kids at a younger age, the more issues that that could actually cause later in life yep. with anxiety and responsibilities and duty and all that other kind of stuff. So, I mean, you think you got to step up to the plate now, which I think is the natural response for any kid, for any good kid that's like, this is what's happening with my parents. I got to be there for my mom. I got to be there for my dad. Like yep. was then that's what that's what you were feeling. Yes and no because it almost felt like I was in the position where I had to choose sides. I had to pick almost. And, and I know that wasn't the case, but that's it right. felt like that. It's got to be so hard to navigate as the parent having the divorce. Yep. Because you're dealing with your own traumatic experience and you have now you have kids in the mix. So it's like you're trying to not you're not trying to make the kid pick sides, but you're also going through your own personal trauma. Your kid's going to see that knowing that that trauma involves the other parent. So it's like you're getting pulled into this place, I feel like, where you're going to feel anyone would feel like they would have to choose a side regardless oh, yeah. of what the parents would say or do. And unintentionally, just out of emotions and anger. I mean, I've never been on the side of divorce of like going through the divorce. You know what yeah. I'm saying? But emotionally, like people are human. You're going to just express your You're feeling angry. You're going to express that anger. Yeah. You're going to say things. You're not going to care who's around you. Both of my parents, they said some shit in front of me that they probably shouldn't have. Yeah. It's like, well, now you're saying things about the other parent. Do I feel, am I supposed to feel this way now? How do I believe that? As a kid, you're impressionable. Oh my God. You just believe anything that an adult says. Exactly. Much. Exactly. So it's yeah. hard. One of the hardest things was like, my mom was so mad at my dad that it was like, oh, he's such a bad person. Like this, that, and the third. And she was upset at him that they got divorced. And for a while, for me, I was like, oh man, I don't, my dad sucks. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's not the case, obviously. Yeah. I, I love my dad very much. I, I've expressed that, you know, yeah. but at the time, I was like, oh, no, the hell with this dude. Like, I've seen other kids do that in divorces. Yeah. I've been there through the divorces of friends and family members where you've seen the kid or kids gravitate to one person initially. And then as time goes on and they experience all of the different things that life has to offer to experience. They start experiencing those things. Then they, then they take that step back and they're yeah. like, okay, we need to reevaluate. I need to understand that I could have been wrong on a few things. I could have jumped to some conclusions here. End of the day, we're all human beings. My parents deserve to be happy. They deserve love, regardless of the way that they go about finding it. 
as long as they, they still care about me and they're good parents, like I want them to be happy too. So it's very hard yep. to go through all that as a kid. I yep. have to imagine. I haven't been through that, but yep. it seems like that's what I think from what you've told me. And I think it only gets easier, like like you just said, when you are able to be mature enough and old enough to formulate your own opinions about the situation, about everything that happened. Because like you just said, I have taken the time. I have sat down and looked back at the divorce and I yeah. look back at everything that, that happened, how it played out. And a lot of the thoughts that I had, I didn't formulate on my own. So I think divorce in more ways than one really can really impact a child in more ways than, and I know it's everyone, you should be worried about your kid at all times. And, but you, I think you're also, you have to focus on your happiness too. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Agreed. I think divorce in general is just a sticky, nasty situation whenever there's children involved. The saying goes, right, to help others, you have to help yourself first. And yeah. that's not just meant to be selfish. It's meant to be, to mean, I think, if you are dealing with all this trauma and you are still processing all this stuff and you're having these hard times, I mean, you have to work on that too yep. so you can be the better husband, the better friend, the better father, the better whatever, that comes with working on your, yourself first. Like they say, if you want to change the world, you change yourself. And then you kind of, you blossom out from there. So yes, what you said earlier too, like, is it, you know, is there a line? Of course there's a line. But the hard part is, is that that line is not easily defined. There's not this perfect little thing where it's like, you can do exactly this much stuff for yourself. And then you got to stop after that. Yeah. Like you're just figuring it out as you go. And then you find a hobby or something that you enjoy. And hopefully it's constructive and not deconstructive. Yep. And you yep. try to, and then you get, if you're dealing with grief from anything, you get into those phases where like I told you, I've gotten so hyper-focused that we're finishing my basement right now, which will be our new studio. Throughout my grieving process, sometimes I would just go down there and I would just start drywalling. Yeah. I would just get hyper-focused on that. But yeah, so no, it, it just, divorce can cause a lot of issues for everybody involved. And I think that it just, this isn't to talk about uh, how terrible divorce is. Like people yeah. know that shit. Oh, it's course. just people also need to understand that grief follows divorce too. Absolutely. Not for just the people involved, but for the kids. And just like with anything else, you get to that acceptance phase and hopefully it makes everything more manageable in the future. And then you can work together. And if you have a good safety net, good people around you, while it doesn't take the pain away, it at least lets you know that you're not alone oh, and yeah. that you're cared for. And that's that buffer, yep. I think. And when you dealt with those things as a kid, did you ever get to accept? Like, where were you at with all that stuff? Did you get to do any, like, did, was there anything that helped you out with that? In regards to, like, the divorce and my grandma's death or just yeah, the divorce? either one of them. Oh, so for my grandmother's passing, um, I've recently just accepted it within the past three, four years. Really? Yeah. And uh, what was it that made you go, that made you understand, like, oh, I'm accepting it now, years later? My dad passing, actually. Because I just, I noticed like the cycles of the, of grieving and the cycles. And I noticed myself getting to acceptance with my dad. So I was like, you know what? It's okay. Ugh. With my, you know what I mean? So I kind of went back, relived everything and almost re-grieved the death of my grandma in, in a way. 
I think that's really, it seems like it's really important to do though. It seems Absolutely. like that's a productive thing. Absolutely. Because I was able to get the closure that I didn't have 13 years ago when yeah. I was an angry teenager. <laughs> right. So I think that helped. And then as far as the divorce, I accepted that I think sooner just in the fact that I was seeing my mom, she was unhappy. And I noticed that when they did separate, she became happier. So I was like, okay, my mom's happy now. It's okay. Yeah. Like it's all right. And I knew, I knew it was going to be okay because she, they did, my parents, they weren't perfect. No couple is, you know what I'm saying? They argued quite a bit, but there was definitely a shift in my mom when it was final. Unfortunately with that, there was also a shift in my dad. I think that's when I was, when I saw that shift in my parents, that's when I think I accepted. Because as the kid, especially in a divorce, and again, this is coming from an outsider's opinion, but it's like, you don't have really any control. Just like with death or anything else, you're just kind of there watching it all happen and trying to deal with it as it comes. So it's like, I feel like, I mean, it would make sense that acceptance for the kid comes when you understand that the people going through it are okay-ish. And what about in the military? Your time in, did you experience, did you have to deal with much grief very often or what? I mean, the biggest grief that I had from the military was I hated my job. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's, that was the biggest, I didn't really experience any like actual i i never had to like grieve that's a good thing and the the other thing that people don't a lot of people i don't think understand about the veteran community and all this is just my personal opinion but individual experiences may vary you find out somebody's a veteran that doesn't mean they were in black hawk down that doesn't mean they're special forces they could have done anything they did their job whatever the hell that meant individual experiences may vary you know yeah absolutely and so for us so i experienced grief i was very lucky because our company did not lose anybody charlie company first of the 178th infantry regiment out of kankakee illinois when we deployed from 2008 2009 when we came home our first sergeant who was a police officer in chicago his last name is kelly first sergeant kelly he got on our bus and he told us we need to be incredibly thankful because every other company, they took losses while we were over there, and we didn't. And so despite the combat that we saw and everything like that, we all came home, and we need to be very thankful of that. And not long after that, I think it was one year, maybe a year and a half, one of the guys that I deployed with killed himself, like shortly after that. Like we made it, and we made it through that deployment. And I wasn't very good friends with this dude. I just didn't know him super well. But, you know, we were familiar with each other and everything. But I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that he did that. Like, we went through everything we went through. We went through that deployment. We weren't in the greatest areas in Afghanistan. We saw what we saw. We fucking made it home. And you made that decision. That was my first experience with suicide in the veteran community. Yeah. Now, because I didn't know him that well, it kind of went as far as like the stages. I was just in denial and then I jumped to acceptance because I didn't know him really well or whatever, but I was, I, was, I couldn't wrap my mind around it and I just jumped right to acceptance. When we were there, we had a mission where we went through some sub valley south of us and we'd ran this mission in this area and it was a pretty bad area. We made it through the sub valley and everything was okay. And then another company rolled through, I think it was the next week or not even that long after, 
and they hit a pressure plate. And they hit a pressure plate IED. So for anybody that doesn't know, that's much as the name implies, it was just something that when you roll over it and put weight on top of it, it detonates an improvised explosive device. And it killed everybody in the Humvee, killed all four. I didn't know those four. One of my very good friends who's a, a squad leader in Charlie and uh, my company did. And we had to do that roll call. And it wasn't the last one, but if uh, you lose somebody, and I, I don't know, this is the only experience that I have, but when those guys died over there, you know, they called a company formation out on the FOB. We all get out there. They read through all the names. And when they read through the names, when they call your name, you you let them know that you're there, that you're here. And then they read the names of the those that were killed. And then there's just silence. And we had their boots and their rifle and their helmet and their pictures up. And, you know, guys were just losing it. And that was fucking surreal because you get over there and depending on your deployment, like I said, I wasn't in Black Hawk now. Our firefights were fairly, were short natured or it would be, you know, some indirect fire, uh, you know, IEDs, mortars, that kind of stuff. But, but it wasn't like super, super prolonged firefights where I had to watch someone die in front of me. So to have those types of experiences, it really reminds you where the fuck you are. And again, in those instances, I went from like kind of denial to anger because it's like, hey, you, this, these guys are on my team. You yeah. know what I mean? And then to acceptance. And aside from that, the first deaths that I experienced in my personal life were also during my time overseas while in the military. So I was very close with my Aunt Pat and my grandmother, and both of them passed away while I was gone uh, with the military doing something. One was for boot camp. No, one... My, I think my grandmother passed away the day I left for AIT and my aunt passed away when I was on my first deployment and my parents made the decision, which I agree with because it's a shitty decision, but they didn't tell me while I was deployed or while I was at boot camp. Sure. They didn't tell me until I got back. And then you feel so much guilt because you didn't know about it. I got the letter that my grandma had fallen, hit her head, and that was it. And I got that letter while I was finishing up boot camp. I remember opening up and reading that letter. My dad sent it to me. It happened on the 4th of July. And that was also, uh, coincidentally, a couple of days after I left for AIT. And then my dad sent me that letter when I was finishing up AIT. And so I'd already made it through all the training. And sure. I'm so thankful in a way that he did that because I wouldn't have been in, I don't know where I would have been mentally, dude. Oh, dude, that would have been a mental yeah. like game changer. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And was I angry at first? Yeah. And I, but I got over that quick. Like I, yeah. I got, I was angry at the, at the fact that they didn't tell me initially, but then I got over that. Cause I was like, I understand why yeah. they did that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I went through all that loss at the same time, but because I was also very busy with the military and my re-understanding of life, it was easier for me to kind of channel my thoughts a little bit, but also in the same time, I didn't really accept what was going on because I didn't have time to process it. Now, as far as the grief we've experienced as adults. Yeah. So the first one for you was vision, right? Or what? Can what I actually think? go back yeah. before we switch gears? Yep. Can I go back to the military side of it? Yeah. After the IED and you had the formation, was there any further, aside from obviously their buddies and people who feel from higher ups, 
was there any further grievances or actions or did was it just like business as usual let's continue the mission it's hard for me to say because i can't i don't remember that as vividly sure sure sure. because this was 2008 2009 right now i remember that like i really enjoyed my company i enjoyed my leadership my platoon sergeant was awesome our squad leaders were phenomenal our captain was or you know he's a captain but he was a second lieutenant i think he had his first lieutenant over there officers or officers which are fine but my enlisted leadership was there and i just don't remember how the follow-up went but i do remember that because of the lay of the land we're at some fob in the middle of bf afghanistan it's like we have a mission to do though we can't sit here and hang on to these things and like i got very good at compartmentalizing things when i was overseas because it would happen but i when I was overseas the first time, it was infantry. Yeah. And so guess what? If you're a grunt, you got to be on your fucking A game when you roll out the wire. Like, you, oh, yeah. you, you can't half-ass your job. If you do, that means someone's going to get killed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the other deployments with the State Department DOD, I was a medic. Guess fucking what? You got to be on your A game when you roll out the wire as a medic too. Because oh, yeah. if anything happens, it doesn't matter what's going on in your personal life. Right. It doesn't matter, unfortunately. What matters is what's in front of you mm-hmm. and you need to get it done, whatever yeah. it is. And so like, I got in a habit of being able to package everything up and put it away with the thought process that I would deal with it later. And then I come home from all these deployments and now all of these boxes that I've packed away in the back of my fucking storage shed in my brain are just leaking out mm. because I never got to deal with that shit before. The first time my mom got sick with uh, myelofibrosis, which turns into leukemia, I was in Afghanistan. And I remember when they told me I was in Gardaz, Afghanistan, and I just remember wearing my I was wearing my kit and I laid down on my bed and I just bawled. Yeah. Because I was thousands of miles away from my mother. Yeah. And I just found this shit out and there's nothing I can do about it. And then what happens? I got a mission coming up. Gotta so go guess what? Mission. I got to fucking go. Yep. I got to put this shit. I got to pack it up and do my job. And then as I've come home, I've, I thought that I can continue doing that. But through therapy, I've realized that. You have to be very careful yeah. when you do that kind of stuff because you keep packaging it away, packing it away. You're hoarding all of these shitty memories with the thought process that you're going to deal with it eventually. And all of a sudden it turns into this looming pyre of just bullshit that yes. you've dealt with. And it's all going to come toppling over at some point if you don't deal with it right now or try to start unpacking a couple of those boxes to keep that tower from getting so high. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. That so makes sense. And then as far as, as we've gotten older. Yeah. So one of the other things that we talked about that can cause grief is injury or just dealing with something like that, which I guess you might know something to do with. I figured, (laughs) I figured you woke up and you're like, I'm pretty, uh, I'm kind of blind. That's fine. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's not going to change my life at all. Nope. Like I said, now I'm daredevil. Yeah. So I'll become an attorney and I'll fight bad guys. And that's totally fine. And I'm assuming you took that like a champ. Like did, everything was oh, totally fine. Yes. As soon as Sunshine it happened. Rainbows. Yeah. As soon as I lost my vision, I was like, dude, daredevil. That's it. You just went to your wife. You're like, funniest thing happened. I uh, actually found all the red latex leather I could and started making a suit. So the tighter, the better. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, like I said, just like a great value daredevil. You're just like out there. You're like, hey, guys, uh, you know, I'm going to do my best. Just uh, don't be an asshole. So I found that if I'm a big fan of assless chaps. 
as are everybody else. So a lot more room for movement. Yes, and you could probably do more deep lunges and spots and things if you had assless chaps. Absolutely. It helps you out a yep. little bit. And <laughs> I just have the thought, like I said, of you just like walking in, just saying to your wife, like, hey, babe, weirdest thing, uh, I can't fucking see anymore. Nope. <laughs> so I might need you to drive today, and we'll just carry on the way we've been carrying on. So how did you deal with the fact that one of your five senses was all but pretty much taken away from you. <sighs> Anger. A lot of the grief cycle, just going through it. As it first started, were you in denial immediately? Yeah, because you do, this can't be happening to me. Yeah. There's no way. I, so many times, I would go to bed and I tell myself, you know what, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be able to see tomorrow morning. Oh, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to, and I did that for, months dude i feel like that's just so scary oh yeah i just kept telling myself there's no way there's no way like oh he made a small mistake it'll fix itself my body will correct itself it'll be fine and then i'd wake up and my vision would get a little bit worse or the next day i wouldn't be able to see something or the next day the light bothered me a little bit more and i was like it'll get better yeah it'll get better and then it, there came a point where uh they thought the tumor was causing the vision loss and I went to treatment for the tumor and the doctor was like, well, if it is the tumor that's causing the vision loss, it's going to get worse because the treatment is going to, it's going to be scar tissue. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But if it is the tumor, your vision will get better. And I was like, awesome. So I was optimistic. Yeah, about, hope. They did the surgery, like or he did the treatment. Like he said, it got worse, but then it, it went back to where it was at. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> So there was a lot of just denial for months. Have you ever accepted it? Are you in the process of accepting it? Do you think you've accepted it? Not even close. I think I tell myself I accept it. There's days where I I do feel like Daredevil and I can take on the world, man. Good. But you then fucking have those days. But then society or someone's got a comment to say or somebody puts their hand in my pocket at a baseball game and yeah. It, then that really knocks me off a peg or two. And it's yeah. just like, damn, dude. I saw this on one of the stoic podcasts that I listened to. And I don't know if this was a quote from, from him or from someone else, but his name's Ryan holiday. He had a quote that said, what you throw in front of a fire becomes fuel to the fire. So with that, what I took away from it was these things happen to you in your life and you can't control them, but you can control your reaction to it. And you allow those moments to turn you into who you are today, which is somebody that's trying to teach other people, one, what it's like to deal with being visually impaired, and two, how to deal with people that are visually impaired. So it's like those experiences have to suck something fierce, but you're turning it into something, which I think is important. I just hope that people are actually genuinely taking something away from what I'm trying to teach them. Yeah, well, what we're both, I think, I think it's kind of safe to say that what we're trying to teach is just unconditional love, really. It's just understanding. It's just like, hey, you're going to see people out there that are living their lives. Yeah. You might not ex understand that. You might see them and you might want to rush to some certain judgment of some kind. You have to be very careful when you do that. Oh, yeah. Because by rushing to that judgment, you can make them, you could plummet them into a pit of despair without even trying. Now, yeah. am I saying we need to? really tiptoe and walk on eggshells, uh, you know, not necessarily, it's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we have to accept that there's a lot in the world that we don't understand. 
if there was a pie chart of things that there are to know, the smallest sliver in that pie chart would be things that we know. Oh, yeah. And then a little bit bigger than that sliver would be all the things that we know we don't know. And then I feel like 99.999% of that pie is shit that we don't know we don't know. Or shit that we think we know that we're experts on. Oh, yeah, that'd be a bigger. <laughs> I feel like that should be a, a pretty, sliver too. That'd be a pretty big slice right before the whole fucking pie. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's the takeaway. Yeah. It's just understanding if you see somebody and they are wearing glasses and they have the walking stick, they may be able to still recognize shapes and things and see a little bit. They're just yeah. more, they, their vision isn't as good as yours and they need this assistance that you don't need. That doesn't mean that you can assume anything about them. That's all. Well, the and I know it, you have to like get to know somebody, but it's the first step is person first, dude. I yeah. want people to not see me as a blind man. Right. I want people to see me as Brad. Because when they see me as a blind person, they start assuming things. They assume that I can't, that I have cognitive disabilities and I can't order for myself at a restaurant. Yeah. Which has happened multiple times. People are trying to order for you for you at restaurants. You're like, bro, we're at McDonald's. Like, I know what the fuck they have here. No, not people. The waitresses. Yeah. And you know, it comes from a place where they're trying. It never comes from a place of malice, I don't think. Oh, no, right? not at all. Not but, at all. But also in that. In that way of trying to be, what, what's the correct terminology? I don't know, patronizing or whatever it may be. It, it's yeah. almost, it, it's condescending to you. Yeah. And it's just a hard situation because it's not coming from a bad place. No. So you're not trying to discipline good behavior, the good behavior of trying to help somebody. You're just trying to let them know, hey, I appreciate that you're taking it this way. But just so you know, like, I'm okay doing these things. Sure. And I don't need assistance doing these things. I think just wear the shoe on the other foot, man. If you yeah. were standing at a restaurant and I came up to you as a waiter and I asked your spouse, what are they having and not asking you, like, how would you feel? Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or somebody putting their hand into your pants in a in, bathroom. Not even, it wasn't even in a bathroom. Yeah. It was just in public. He, he put his hand in my pocket and said, you ain't blind. And he didn't even know you. Didn't even know me. Like, I would, like dudes I deployed with, yeah, and I'll the, do that. You the know what worst I mean? part about it, when I turned around to see who put their hand in my pocket, yeah. this dude, he looked like a wall. Yeah. He had to have been like six, seven, three fifty. I mean, maybe that was just in my mind because he just put his hand in my pocket, but I'm pretty sure he was a behemoth of a gentleman. <laughs> I guess I don't really want to call him a gentleman because he put his hand in my pocket. But and if you walk through life doing that kind of shit to people, I'm gonna go ahead and make a couple of assumptions that may yeah. be unfair, but I'm gonna assume you don't have a lot of great people in your life. Cause if you're the type of person that's gonna do some shit like that, you know, you got some issues of your own. I would think, but yeah. So, I mean, and then as far yeah. as the acceptance is concerned, yep. you all, you and I have talked about that the first time we ever met. First time we met when you kind of told me what was going on and I told you that story about the Vietnam veteran that lost his legs, the two Vietnam veterans. Yeah. One lost his legs, became a farmer and, and had a family and still lived his life. The other one lost his legs and, and committed suicide. It was talked about on, uh, on Jocko Willink's podcast. With that, when the Vietnam veteran that had lived, had the family, had a full life after losing his limbs, was asked about the other one that killed himself, the veteran said he never accepted what happened to him. He never accepted that, that this was his life now, whereas the veteran that was able to move on did. That's not something that I can speak on because holy shit. Yeah. Like that's a lot. 
to be able to accept something like that. But when I told you that story, like it seemed like that struck a chord with you because you told me that up to that point, you really hadn't accepted. Yes. You told me that story. And at that time, I saw that that was a possibility. I saw that that was an option. Just because I I didn't want to accept that this was my life. I did not want to accept that people are, are going to see me as a disability. And a part of me knew that. I knew that nothing was going to be the same again. And yeah, man, I would be lying if I said I didn't think about that or go down that route. Yeah. Well, like you said, and that's why acceptance was important to you because you needed to understand that one, I can control what I can control. And if this is what's going on and there's no changing this, well, there's still plenty of things that I have to do in this world. Absolutely. Plenty of worth that I have, right? Yeah. And then after that, after you were dealt the blow of dealing with a vision impairment, then you got to deal with losing your dad. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. how was that? Was that fine? It was uh, like after uh, after you dealt with the vision impairment, just hopped straight into that? Yeah. Yep. That was... Uh, it's always shitty. Again. Yeah. When it comes to like with what I'm dealing with with my mom, trauma doesn't wait for shit. <laughs> Unfair bullshit does not care. Nope. Doesn't care what you're going on, what we have going on in your life. It, it doesn't care. Like when you're going through the day to day, the normal day to day, and you get into that cruise control spot where it's wake up, help the kids with breakfast, go to they go to school, you go to work, you come home, spend some time with the spouse, go to bed, wake up the next day, do the same thing, yeah. and then you're saying to yourself like, oh, I don't have any extra time in my day. Like, I don't have time to do anything else. And then, boom, like, life hits you with this fucking traumatic event that changes everything about your life. And you're just like, okay, well, I guess I got to just kind of figure this shit out. And it, it doesn't wait for the most opportune time because there is no fucking opportune no. time. So how did you deal with with everything that happened with your dad? And what, what happened with your dad? Like, talk about that, if you wouldn't mind. He went into the hospital emergency room in April. Beginning of April, bad cough, thought it was just like COVID. This year. Yeah, this year. COVID, bronchitis, whatever. Went in. Well, long story short, turns out it, it was uh, stage four lung cancer. He was in the hospital, did one round of chemo. Basically was like, dude, fuck this. I want to go home, spend time with my family. So we moved him into my sister's house, actually in the hospice care. And then once that happened, I was there every day at my sister's house. And how long? was that so he moved into my sister's house beginning of may yeah end of april beginning of may and then he passed may 24th okay so it was about yeah about three weeks three four weeks so may so mm -hmm. not very long ago may yep so yep. how has the grief process been for you have been have you been going through those stages you've been kind of where have you been at i have um and it really is a cycle I, there's days where I wake up and I'm in straight denial. Like, there's no way. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way. Like, I'm just going to pick up my phone and call my dad. There's no way that he's dead. And then the next day, I'm like, you know what? It sucks. He's gone. But I have this memory. 
and I yeah. laugh and I think of the good times. Yeah. And then there's days where I just want to break shit. And it is. Every day is different. It's just, it is. It's a cycle. It's wet noodles. <laughs> it's, we hung out shortly after your dad passed, didn't we? When you called me, we hung out in the garage for a little while. We did. We did. Yep. That was, I think I was like days after. It was. Yep. And I feel like at that point, you're still in so much shock and just trying to understand. And like, you can't even wrap your mind around what happened. And how do you feel like you've been doing now? Are you, do you feel like you're still in the throes of everything? Do you feel like you're making some progress? Do you like, what do you, what do you think? Again, it is different on the day. Yeah. I, I yeah. think I feel like, I feel like I'm making progress. But then the other day I was doing laundry and I was sitting in the basement and I was just waiting for my dog to start barking. Cause my dad walked in the door. Cause he would, he would just like Ugh. periodically do that. You know what I'm yeah. saying? He would just like stop by and then the dog would go crazy. Yeah. And I was just, I was just waiting and it never came. And that's something that makes me hate Facebook memories and Snapchat. Yeah. Also, I appreciate it. And also not at the same time, because, you know, it shows you all these memories. It shows you all these other, these happier times, these more fun, fun times. And it's good to be reminded of that. But because you don't get to control when you get reminded of it, it's almost like it's a little intrusive in your life where you're just like, listen, I'm processing my grief. And Facebook's like, hey, remember when your mom came over and you guys baked together and laughed and had a great time? Like, oh, cool. I guess I'm going to cry on my way to work today. Like, yeah. holy shit. I've noticed it seems like the way that you've been processing it it again i it's not something that gets better but it seems like you've been doing a pretty good job as far as how you've been getting through it i'm trying man yeah. i think in my mind um it feels like i have to be strong always one because i'm a man so in society yeah i just feel like i have to do that fuck that two because i feel like i am the support for my family I am supposed to be the man of the house. The like, this is my house. This is my family. Like, yeah. I'm a man. I'm not saying like that's, I don't do that. Like I do take care of my stuff, but I am noticing I'm not like a traditional manly man. No, fuck all that. <laughs> you know what I'm fuck saying? all that stuff about <laughs> traditional masculinity, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. When you're talking about being strong, the definition to me of being strong has changed greatly over time for sure and now i believe part of being strong is being able to admit whatever emotions you're dealing with admitting that you have problems and flaws and that you're working on them that's fucking strength when you see somebody admitting that they're having a hard time that they're having a problem and they're doing their best that is a strength because you had the strength to fucking tell other people that you are dealing with some of the hardest shit in your life. You you have the ability to be emotional. And I think that's what strong is now, to me at least. Yeah. You speaking, know what I mean? Speaking of strength, dude, how are you doing? Fuck, not great. No. Not doing great. So my mom, in June, she called me up one afternoon and she said that... um she had a pain in her stomach. So I remember she had myelofibrosis in like 2013, 14, something like that. And she kicked its ass, got a bone marrow transplant. It was a whole thing, exhausting situation. But my mom crushed it. And then, you know, she calls me up one day. She's telling me about this pain she has. And I said, mom, go to the emergency room. 
you need to get it checked out. Like just be on the safe side. Because again, that mentality of, oh, you know, I'm just going to tough this shit out. Yeah. Doesn't really go well. It doesn't really go well long term, especially when it's a serious issue. So I said, my go to the hospital. She goes to the hospital. My dad's like, hey, they're going to do a they're going to do a surgery. She has a bowel obstruction. I'm like, OK. And I, and I was at a golf outing and my dad called me. And he said, hey, they finished the surgery. And I said, OK. And he goes. But then the doctor took me into a room, and the second he said that, I felt the blood leaving my face, like leaving my head. I'm standing there on the golf course. I can still remember, you know, it didn't happen long ago. I can remember where I was standing. I was with a very good friend of mine. I was golfing with a, somebody I used to work for, Rob, over at Serta Pro Painters. My dad said that they found masses, a lot of them, and that we were going to have to do a biopsy and see what all it was. And my dad started to lose it over the phone a little bit. Now, what we talked about earlier, I've seen my dad cry maybe once in my life. And it's not that he tries to portray himself as an overly masculine person. My dad is awesome. He just hasn't cried in front of me. He just sure. never really cried in front of me. And um, so to hear him cry, I was like, immediately I went numb for a minute. And I said to myself, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to finish this round of golf and then I'm going to go, go over there. Like that's the first thing I said to myself as, as dumb as that might've been. I made it half a hole. I got to the tee box. I hit my drive. It was a terrible drive, which has nothing to do with the fact that I was grieving and everything to do with the fact that I'm a fucking terrible golfer. <laughs> and I was going to get the ball and Rob came up to me and he was like, Hey dude, like you got to go. We don't, I don't care, man. I don't care. We don't need to finish this outing. And when he said that and looked at me, I started crying. And I, and I couldn't even get it out. I was like, I got to go. So I get in the car. That was the beginning of the process. So the past like month and a half, my mom, she's dealing with this aggressive and rare form of adenocarcinoma. And uh, she was in the hospital for a while. And the whole time, you know, we had to transfer her from one hospital to another hospital. We transferred her to a hospital up north in Naperville called Edward Hospital, which they've been doing a phenomenal job. They're like a cancer center and all this other shit. Yeah. And you spend so much time at that hospital that that hospital becomes a home to you too. Been there, man. Actually, that's where I did all of my uh, brain surgeries and all. At Edward, treatments. yeah, at Edward, yep. great hospital, absolutely. And like, we talk about offensive language in culture. Like, culture talks about offensive language all the time. And offensive language is is offensive means something that causes a, a, a that upsets you greatly, right? Sure. And what I think what pisses me off is when we attribute offensiveness. To words like fuck. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? No. Yeah. You know, word fuck isn't offensive. You know what's offensive to me? Cancer. Days to weeks. That's fucking offensive to me. Yeah. When the doctor told me that my mom had days to weeks, that was the most offensive fucking thing I've ever heard. I'm not taking that out on the doctor, but you want to talk about offense? You're telling me that's as offensive as fuck? Because the reason why we say fuck cancer is because there's no other word that can properly convey all of the emotions and hatred and everything that someone feels about cancer than the word fuck. Yeah. That's, when it comes to fuck cancer. And yeah. like, I've spent so much time up at the hospital. I would go up there and stay the night up there. There would be times where I would come home because that's a drive. It's like a little over an hour, right? Oh, yeah, that's a haul. So I'd go up there, come home, and then I would say to myself, like, I'm not happy with how much time I spent up there. And I would turn around and fucking go back, and then I'd stay the night. 
And I would stay in the night. And there were times where I just held my mom's hand for hours. There was times where we went through all of that bullshit. Been there, man. Because I just told myself I'm not going to regret it. And then we were told that she needed hospice, going to hospice care. And when they first told me that, I got mad at the doctor that told me. And I shouldn't have. The doctor was doing her fucking job. But I wasn't ready to handle that shit. And that was hard for me. And then once we dealt with the fact that we were going to have to get her home, we, we finally brought her home. And right now she's in hospice care well, through Uplifted Care, which is a phenomenal organization. I'd worked with them as a nonprofit. They've helped me out with veterans. They do phenomenal things at Uplifted Care. And I was very thankful that they could be the ones that take care of my mother. But it puts you in this weird place when your parent is under that type of care. Yeah. Because you're like, do I give up hope completely? Do I prepare myself for the possible future? Because like I'm talking to my mom and she's still strong as shit. Before yeah. we did this episode, I picked up Brad. I brought him to my house or my parents' house because I needed to help my mom with things. Yep. And the second we left, you got a little teary eyed because that I shit did. brought everything back. I did. Yeah. And, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, 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 no. And you saw her. Yeah. And the first thing she said was, she was just like, hi, Brad. Yeah. And she goes, I like the podcast. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> she listens and she's still listening right now. And she's strong as shit and she looks great. Yeah. But when you're talking to that hospice nurse and they're just like, we need to stop taking these medications because they're long-term medications. And you're like, Jesus. You know what the worst part of hospice care for me, for my dad was? What? One day he was sitting up, doing great, talking, doing amazing. And it's like the next day, dude, he was gone. You don't get to choose and it just doesn't make sense. And when it happens to a family member, the other difficult part about it is all of the other people in your family's life that may end up reaching out to you about what's going on. And somebody needs to spread the message of what's happening. But what's also hard is when everybody is asking you and you're essentially reliving everything. Oh, multiple dude. times a day. It's it, I know the struggle, man. I, I, I get it. And the moments that I've had with her, I'm extremely thankful for. Like I said, my mom is tough as shit. So I'm still, I still have a, some hope based on how she's been presenting and everything like that. When we were at the hospital, she was giving, she gave recipes to like every fucking nurse. The one benefit of being Filipino is when you go to a hospital, guess what, bro? All the nurses are Filipino. Yep. yep. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're a Filipino? They stop by, hang out a little bit. My yeah. mom, like I said, she was giving out recipes to everybody and just... We've been bringing friends by her house. We brought friends that she hasn't seen in a really long yeah. time. And those are super emotional. And now as the son, I'm kind of going through all this stuff and trying to be the strong one. And I'm very thankful because the strong person in a grieving process bounces around. Like sometimes it's me, sometimes it's my dad. And thank God that up to this point, it's always one of us. Yeah. If I'm breaking down all of a sudden, my dad just snaps to it. And all of a sudden he's the strong one and he's helping me get through. And then when he's hurting, then I step up. There was only one moment where, and this was, this moment lives, will live rent free in my head, regardless of the outcome. But my grandmother and my uncle came from the, from California to visit with my mom. And we were all up at the hospital together. And my mom had her first moment kind of, of, of breaking down. Because sure. like I said, my mom's the strongest person I know. Not strongest woman. She's the strongest person I know. And 
the only time I saw her breakdown was that moment. And she cried and she looked at us and said, I'm not ready to go yet. And dude, every single one of us just fucking lost it at that point. Ugly crying, sobbing, like, what do you fucking say? And I zoomed out of that moment and I just saw flashing lights and a big sign that said, hey, this is the worst moment of your fucking life, buddy. Like, this is going to just be hanging out in your head for a super long fucking time. Like, we need to embrace it, roll with it, accept it. But I knew that was going to be the worst moment, one of the worst moments. And after that happened, I immediately called up some of my best friends. And thankfully, like, I was just like, it was late. And I said, hey, guys, I need some help right now. And immediately... They all came over to my house. It was like 10 o'clock at night. Brought a case of beer. We drank until about 2 in the fucking morning. Outside, sitting around a fire, arguing about the differences between country music and Western music. <laughs> Just doing shit like that. And it made me feel better. And all of them have also lost a family member at some point. And I cried to them. And, and it wasn't just that conversation. I cried to them. I got it out. And then we we just talked like we would normally talk. And it was so helpful for me. But it's just been... It's been a wave yeah. so far, and I don't know what to expect, but, you know, I know that my mom listens to this. So yeah. again, you know, just so she knows, I love you and, and you are doing amazing right now. And I'm so proud of you, mom. But yeah, dude, so it's hard. <laughs> it's okay, dude. Oh, man. Hey, emotional's in the fucking name, buddy. Damn straight, dude. <laughs> God. And the thing is, <laughs> is when it comes to getting emotional and crying, other people apologize for it. Not me. I don't give a shit. I'm not apologizing for crying yeah. because that's how I feel. And the people in my life that I care about deserve every tear. So I'm not going to fucking apologize for it. And that's one of the stigmas that we're trying to talk about here Damn is you're going to get emotional about shit. And that's fine. I didn't even mean to say the name of the podcast and I just did. That's how great <laughs> our marketing is. Hell Jeez. yeah. <laughs> but so to kind of try to make this a little more positive, you know, one of the things that I've dove into throughout this is, again, reading. And in so a book that I've talked about before, Man's Search for Meeting by Dr. Viktor Frankl, I said that I shouldn't have let into this saying it was positive because it's kind of pretty fucking depressing at first. <laughs> but Dr. Frankl, he was, he was a Holocaust survivor. He was in Auschwitz. He was in Dachau. And he's a psychologist, I believe a psychologist. In Man's Search for Meaning, he lost his wife, he lost his brother and his mother and possibly his father in those death camps, okay? So he went through that shit. And then afterwards, he still managed to help other people deal with trauma. And what he said in that book, he says a lot of things. He quotes Friedrich Nietzsche when he says, those who have a why can bear almost any how. And the need for meaning and how when you suffer without meaning, it becomes despair. And despair is the scariest place, the place you don't want to fucking go. And you have to make sure that you try to assign meaning to your suffering. And he did that. And he suffered in a way that I can't even fathom. No. I can't even, like, you listen to that book, you read that book, and it's like, I can't imagine what he went through personally, much less with all the losses that he felt with. So with that, the fact that he was able to add meaning to the suffering and he was able to find his way out of it that lets me know that that's possible that lets me know that people can do that and sometimes that's what you need for me the meaning is if i can go through this suffering and 
it can help me help others that are suffering, then there's meaning there. Absolutely. Because these things that we're dealing with, a lot of people have to deal with. And it can be very easy to say to yourself that there's no fucking meaning to this at all. Trust me. Like I have said that time and time again with clenched fists and a clenched jaw and tears running down my fucking face. But I try to remind myself like there's a meaning to this. Regardless of the outcome, there's a meaning. And if it's going to make you stronger, if it's going to make you somebody that can better help other people that are going through the same thing, then you have fucking meaning. I think we found it. This podcast is a product of meaning, dude. Yeah. I, and this is, I genuinely think this is my purpose. Yeah. At least right now. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is the meaning that I've been searching for. And, and I agree with everything that you just said. It's a lot. And, and you've been through a lot that you don't give yourself enough credit for. And uh, again, we're just here to try to help other people. Because like I said earlier too, I know so many people that have suffered some sort of catastrophic loss in the past six months, year, during COVID, whatever, grandparents, parents, kids, whatever, spouse, like holy shit and divorces. It's so hard and it's so easy to try to blow past all of the stages of grief to think that you don't have fucking time to deal with it. And you put it on the back burner and then it just festers and it turns into some super destructive shit at some point in your life. And so what we're just trying to do is make sure that you acknowledge it and you talk about it and you just try to process it in a super, as productive and constructive as as a, of a way as possible, right? Absolutely. It's the goal. Well, so as far as grief is concerned, we didn't get nearly as emotional as I thought. I thought I was going to cry the entire fucking time. I did too. Especially when I was gonna, <laughs> when, I, when I talk about my mom. Yeah. Because I feel like it's something I almost can't really control sometimes when I just feel that way. It just but happened. I think we did all right. We as did far, As far as things that a positive way to end this, while I like to look for stories online, I wanted to use a real big positive in my own life. So kind of like I was talking about earlier, for me, uh, this has been the worst experience of my life. This has been the hardest experience of my life. I'll be very open with all of it. The range of emotions I've dealt with, how hard it's been on my whole family, and everything like that. And so one day I went over to the Veterans Assistance Commission of Kankakee County, and I talked to my friend over there, who's also chair of Project Headspace and Timing, Karen Smetansky. And she said that there was an envelope dropped off at the VAC for me, because people know that I go to the VAC. I was like, okay. And I figured it was just a letter or a bill. I figured like maybe it was a bill for Project Headspace and Timing or something. So I got the envelope and I opened it up and a bunch of gift cards fell out. There was a gift card for Casey's, for Monocles, for Dunkin' Donuts, and for a massage place. And there was a letter in there that said, Dear Peterson Family. And it, it talked about how we understand that you're going through a lot as a family right now. and we know how much you do for your community, so please take these things, get gas, get coffee, to take my family out, to get some pizza. We love you. We care for you. We're here for you. You know, this is from your community. And like, I read that. And like I said, initially, you know, I was pretty composed and I sent a picture of it to my, my wife and so she could read it. And she was at work and she called me five seconds later. And she was just like, who said that? Like she was, <laughs> and when she started doing that, like I was right in tow. I was like, I know. <laughs> like I was, I was fucking, I was ugly crying. She was ugly crying. 
if it makes you feel better, I, I noticed you posted it on Facebook yeah. and, I, and I read it and I was ugly crying. Oh like, my God. I was like, oh my, I was like, people are so nice. <laughs> because we've talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing makes the grief go away. Yeah. Nothing just takes it away from you. But the reminder that there are people around you that love you yeah. and they're just not going to let you be alone. It, why I think that helps is it, it helps give meaning to your suffering because you know that, hey, I'm here. I'm still here. I'm with these people. I can feel these feelings. I can go through these emotions. I can go through the stages of grief and I can still be who I am. And it's going to change me. And that's okay because there's nothing I can do about that. I have to accept it. And so to have that kind of support, there's no words to describe what that means. Other than that, you got anything else to say about grief? Don't, man. We could cry some more. We could just end it with us bawling. You, you could sit on my lap. Now we could be, cry that way. That would be a pretty good time. How awkward would that have been if you were sitting on my lap and we were both crying? How much more awkward would have been if I was sitting on your lap facing you and we were both crying? I feel like it'd be less awkward because then we were like looking at it. Now, I don't know, because <laughs> the angles on my back's fucked up. But either way, we just hope that if you are dealing with grief in any sort of way, that you can find some solace in knowing you're not the only one. There's a lot of productive ways to deal with grief, but it all starts with understanding what you're dealing with and not beating yourself up about it. If you have any other questions, please reach out to us and we'll direct you to any other resources we have or reach out to Melanie on the page, licensed professional counselor, who's just a wealth of knowledge on everything. We hope that you are doing as fine as you can. We love you unconditionally and we'll see you next time.